This is Life of an Architect, a podcast dedicated to all things architecture, with a little bit of life thrown in for balance. Do you have a design culture in your office? Why is it that some firms have it and others don't? A culture of design isn't something that just happens. There has to be a plan. It needs to be cultivated. And even then, without the right sort of people in place, you might be fighting an uphill battle. Today's episode is brought to you with generous support from Sherwin-Williams. Hi, everyone. I'm Bob Borson. And I'm Andrew Hawkins. And today we're talking about design culture, what it is, how to get it, and what you can do to help it become a self-sustaining force in your own office. Force is a good word. It is a good word. You think there's so many cool things that conjure to mind when you say the word force. Mostly using telepathy. Exactly. Mostly (laughs) little green people. I No, I don't think I would have gotten to little green people. Yoda. Oh, okay, yeah. Or the baby Yoda. He did, the baby Yoda. The child. All right. So I've been reading endlessly on today's topic, which is the process of creating a design culture in an office and why you'd want to even do that. And I've been looking at this for about seven months. Is there anything magical about that number to you, Andrew? Seven months. No. Yes. I know. It's when you started your new job. It's when I started working at Boca Pal. And so... Part of the reason I started looking at this is that I've never had to actually, you know, when it comes to creating a culture of design, I've never had to actually codify it in any of my past offices. You know, I'd say that I'd like to think that I was in a leadership position, but when you're eight people, 10 people, you're kind of horizontally stratified a little bit. Yeah. I mean, technically I was in a leadership position, but. In reality, yeah, you're all kind of on the same playing yeah, field. Yeah, I the took out part. the trash just like yeah, everybody else. Yeah, exactly. So, but when I started to come over to my new job, changing the culture there or modifying it, you know, just something from taking it from what it is now, which is good to maybe something that could be better, mm-hmm. was something that was part of the conversation process as I was talking about. If I come over there, what are the sorts of things that they might want me to take on? What am I doing it for? Not that, but yeah. Well, it's an interesting kind of, because part of it is, so at Boca Pal, we're about 110 to 115 people total, but 80 to 85 of those people are in the Dallas office. Mm-hmm. So we're not that big that you don't know everybody, you know, and kind of have a feel for what's going on everywhere. Mm-hmm. But we are big enough that there's silos of workflow. And because we have four partners, one of them is on every single project, you kind of get like this group of people tends to work with that partner. Yeah. Right. I mean, it starts to stratify in a little bit. That's right. I don't know that it's anything that's intentionally planned. It just kind of, it's like shuffling a deck of cards a hundred times. They kind of start putting themselves back in order again, to a certain extent. I was talking with Andrew Bennett, who is basically my boss about what are some of the positive things that we could take from my experience in a small firm and extrapolate and scale them up to be something of value for a larger firm. And culture of design was one of these topics that came up a handful of times. And it wasn't about, we need to change what it is, because they're not looking to change it. They're looking to evolve it, which let's be honest, that's what every healthy organization should be constantly trying to do. What we have is X. Can we do it better? Can we keep improving? Sure. That's right. That's part of this. So about seven months ago, I went from this Everything just kind of fell into place and we didn't actually know why it was, you know, it just kind of, you know, I had my thoughts. It's like, you know, based on the people that we hired, you know, we had certain kind of 
I won't say recruiting practices in place. We hired a certain sort of individual and that person kind of led to what I believe was created this culture of design that's existed in my past office. So I start drilling down and man, let me tell you, I've read more articles on this subject possibly than any other subject in the last five years. <laughs> really? Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. And you should share some with me. I got them all here today. Well, not all of them. I took the high points because they start to be kind of, uh, it's kind of the same. You're like, everyone's writing like the same five things, but they're just putting their own kind different, of different bent to it. it. Or, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, but I think it's really important because we've all been there we, or we've seen it or you just like, you project what you believe to be true. Like there are certain firms and, you know, we were talking about this just a little bit ago. Yeah. Like Snowetta, they seem to have a culture of design there. Mm-hmm. And you look at them and you go, everything they do is kind of like, oh, it has to do with design. Like every every moving part seems to filled into this idea that that they do everything in an effort to make design a cornerstone of every decision they make. Mm-hmm. I don't know that to be true, right? It just appears. It seems that way. It seems that way. That is the outward projection of what's happening. Yeah. Yeah. So in a case like Snowetta, I don't know, but I do think that perception and reality are the same here. Yeah. Because if people believe this is what a thing is, then they're going to feed into it and it becomes this kind of takes on a yeah, life. It does itself. become that thing, right? Yeah. So, well, we can't all be Snowetta. No. Right? So as I'm reading through this and I was like, okay, so maybe we start with the idea of like, what is design and is creating a culture of it worth doing? Why would you want a culture design? And I go, well, I'm not sure that I can sum up what that means in a single sentence. I can define what it's not. <laughs> you know, it's not beer Fridays and dogs in the office, whiteboards all over the place and movable furniture, bean bags, pinup walls everywhere. Yeah, yeah. That's not what it is. Yeah. That might be byproducts of that. But if you just populate your office with dogs, bean bags, whatever, beer Fridays, you're not going to get it. It's not enough. It's just not. Yeah. No, it, no, no. Right. It might foster something that's already there or add to it. But if you don't have it and you just drop those things in the office, yeah, it's not going to work. I mean, people do like beanbag chairs. Oh, yeah. Well, I said, people do like dogs in the office maybe too. <laughs> and I'm not objecting to beer Fridays, Mondays, Tuesdays, Wednesdays, I whatever say, beer days. Why does Friday got to have the yeah, I know. monopoly on beer? Yeah. Okay. So we're talking about you have to build a system where a design can thrive. Everybody's kind of buying into the idea that this is a cornerstone and everything. This is the font from which all things spring forth. Mm-hmm. So I think designers need to understand the purpose of what they're doing in order to create this atmosphere that we're talking about. We're talking about everybody buying in, but obviously it's got to start with the people responsible for the actual design, which is another thing. I think everybody is like even the person detailing the buildings. I think they're responsible for design too. But like if I take my own office, we have people there that that's all they do. Now we have a process in place. We like kick them from the nest, right? A lot of the designers in our office, they're young. Mm-hmm. Like they're right out of school. Like mm-hmm. we went, we'll talk about this a little bit more later because it comes up again. But when we were interviewing people, we we're going to these career fairs. You know, the really clever students would say, well, so what would I be doing? And I go, that building right there, you could design that within like a week of you showing up. Yeah. That's how we roll. Sure. And they're like, what? That's no, you're kidding me, right? I go, we have older people, more seasoned, that will, of course, correct you and teach you. But yeah, you're there because we want unbridled 
ideas. I don't want you just to be bogged down with, well, cantilevers, you know, can I have the, yeah. we don't want or to worry about that. toilet details or whatever, right? Yeah. Yeah, we don't want that. And that literally was blowing people's mind. I think it's pretty unusual, but yeah. So it's at least for a larger firm. Yeah. I mean, see, that's the thing I think that's so interesting about the firm I'm in now. And I've said it before. If this was some other 1,200 person firm, 500 person firm, no way. I couldn't have made that jump. Yeah. I mean, I'll be honest with you. Making the transition from 10 to 110 yeah, that's still crazy. has been really, has been hard. What has been hard is the moving from, from where I'm at to where I know they want me to be. Mm-hmm. And part of it's like, we're not going to let you into these rooms until you've been here for a while. Yeah. So in the meantime, you're going to have to like fill your time with all this other stuff. And so that's what I've been having to go. All right. Well, I know too much to be dangerous and not enough to be like unbridled. Mm-hmm. So it's been a very interesting experience. However, the point I was trying to get to was that the people who are that white paper designer, the people who have that role, you definitely have to have them buying into the idea that design is the font from which all things spring forth. Yeah, I agree. So how do you actually create that? I mean, how do you set up saying, all right, everybody, how do I get everybody on board? You know, we're design coaches, the coach of the design team, right? I think you need to make design be everybody's responsibility. And that sounds like a throwaway statement. I mean, I'm hearing it coming out of my mouth and I go, well, duh, but I don't think it's that easy or straightforward for a lot of people. Yeah. I don't think it is either. I don't think it was a throwaway statement. I think it's an actually lofty statement, but also not a simple one. Well, I think it becomes harder when you go to bigger firms where tasks and responsibilities, they can become siloed. Yeah. They start to be segregated. This is the group that does this and this is the yeah. group that does that. I can see that. So we have project architects and we have project managers and we have designers and that kind of stuff, mm-hmm. which they're just labels. So I'm not going to get bogged down into the difference between a project architect and a project manager. Like we talked about that a couple episodes ago. Yeah. But there are times when I hear the people who are the project architects, the people that are in Revit and they're detailing and they're documenting stuff and they get frustrated and they're like, well, I didn't design it. They need you to tell them what to do because they're like, I'm not a designer. Mm. And I go, yes, you are. You are. You make a thousand more design decisions than the person who got you to this point. Quite honestly, they may not all be as grand or as big, but as you stitch the building together, you're making thousands of design decisions. And if they can't recognize that as part of the design process, I go, there you go. Problem number one, we got to deal with. Yeah, there's a disconnect there. They, they don't realize that those are design decisions. Yeah. yeah. And some people, they just don't see it that way. I know. And I'm not sure that they purposely don't see it that way. Like it's a conscious decision. Like they might be saying, oh, I'm not the white paper designer. Fair enough. But what you're doing is still design. I don't need them to get all the way to the, I'm a white paper designer as I'm documenting the building, Mm -hmm. but I need them to understand that there's design choices and responsibility in everybody's job. Right. Yeah. I think we can do that. Yeah. I think that's, again, that's one of those ways it has to be that way in order to foster this culture of design. Everybody has to believe that every person has an impact on it. Yeah. Well, and that, that they're contributing to this. Okay, sure. So how do we, how do we make that happen? Well, let's start with facilitating inclusion. Right. So that, you know, you break down the barriers. So it's not like these people work on a project in a design capacity up to a point and then it gets passed on and there's no more design. There's just execution. Mm -hmm. So you got to facilitate 
inclusion so that those barriers go away and people move to the left and the right of those barriers as the project evolves from white paper to going out the door. Sure. Well, I think there's there's some vertical fluidity, if you want to call it that, in the way that works that I'm not getting excluded, even though I may not necessarily be able to get my ideas executed, but I'm not allowed to see what's happening. If that makes sense. Yeah. In other words, you don't end up in a case of the left hand doesn't know what the right hand's doing, or at least I still know what's happening, even if I'm not responsible for it. Or Sure. You're not being excluded from a certain amount of knowledge. Yeah. And I would say we even need to go beyond people knowing, but people participating. Yeah. To a certain extent, though, right? I mean, at some point, again, like you say, there's a line that you have to, at least in my mind, we have to start to overlay a little bit of reality or practicality or whatever it is. Sure. It's all sort of fluid, I think. So... There's a couple ways that my office is currently going about trying to create this type of inclusion. So we have these things called more groups, which are pretty cool as an idea. M-O-R-E? No E. M-O-R. M-O-R. It actually stands for Matrix of Responsibility. Oh, okay. Which, if we're being honest, I think they just came up with more because it's like the design more. You know, everything's like the professional development more. Right? Oh, like whatever okay. it is, it's more. more. I got you. Right. And they said, okay, major responsibility. They might listen to this, even though I don't think anyone, just like every office I work at, nobody pays attention to what I'm doing. Sure. So we have a bunch of these more groups. We have a professional development more. We have a sustainability more. We have community outreach more. We have a design more. And what they are is there are little subcommittees within the office that generally do not have leadership guidance. Let me rephrase that. They don't have partner guidance. Like sometimes a partner might sit in on occasion. But they're not running the show. They're not running the show. And really what it is, is it gives some ownership to to decisions of, regarding processes and involvements and, you know, just anything mm-hmm. to the people that work there. Mm-hmm. So if you're really into sustainability, right, this is things really important to you, which it should be for all. But for some people, it's like, I mean, it's, Even more it's so. a true calling. Sure. And we have such a person in our office. Our sustainability group has like 30 people in it. It's huge. Mm-hmm. And they're going through it and looking through the products we specify and saying, these are better used products than these ones. Like the damage that that product has on the environment is substantial. Here's an alternative. Mm-hmm. So they're going through and trying to put some logic and reason behind all these things. And they end up having inclu- their inclusion. Yeah. So I'm in charge of the design more in my office. And that's on paper. I mean, I, I lean on everybody in that group to do stuff. Mm-hmm. I don't have this ivory tower mentality where I decide what we're going to do and then I launch it down from my ivory tower onto the surfs. So I'll say, hey, I got an idea. And then I'll pull people together and say, what do you think? Da, 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 da. I want people's opinion. Like, sure. Because I go, if you want something to be successful, you got to have more people that have a little ownership. They got a little piece of it. It's theirs. Like they, they've helped birth it. Sure. I mean, even I always think more heads are better than one. Yes. So in our design more group, we have a couple things that we're doing, which I think are kind of fun. And they're for the sole purpose of trying to knock down barriers, create inclusion across more groups than just the white page designers. Mm-hmm. And so one of those things is we have a thing called seven minutes in heaven, which I've actually talked about on the website back in October. What it is, is we want people to get better at standing up in front of a group of people and presenting. Oh, yeah. Like what I just talked about. Yeah. We want them to be comfortable with it. Sure. So the idea was I'm tutoring these people because I speak to a lot of people all the time and I don't really have any problems. I mean, I think I'm good at it. I've heard that I'm bad at it. The idea is, and these are all volunteers. 
We haven't had any voluntolds yet. Okay. That's good. Yeah. And we actually have people saying, can I go next? Like they're volunteering to go next. And so the premise is basically you get to choose whatever topic you want to talk on. Because the goal of this isn't for you to talk about anything in particular. It's about you learning how to make eye contact and how to talk about just stuff in general, just talk like about to talk stuff. in front of people. Yeah. Sure. So you get to choose what you talk about. So that way that's not part of what you're having to figure out. You're not having to memorize something that you should already be very familiar with. Sure. Right. So if you want to talk about the 1927 Yankees and murderers row, you can do that. So I kicked it off. I talked about barbecue. I was like, if I'm talking about barbecue on this weekend. Well, you know, it's funny. They said, Bobby, you have to go first. And I go, done, easy. And they go, and you can't talk about anything you've ever talked about before. I was like, oh. <laughs> I go, okay, well, I've never talked about barbecue. So I gave a presentation on barbecue. I'm going to guess this is a seven-minute presentation. The idea is it's seven minutes of whatever, whatever you, you want. want. Yeah, whatever you want, baby. Okay. <laughs> right? And we say uh, seven minutes is loose. We want to give people, they can punt out. Like You don't have to go for long. It's not a half hour. Yeah. Well, you got to build up to that. Yeah. As we've seen from multiple conferences that we've attended, first time to present something and it's an hour, that's bad. It's rough for some For most people. Yeah. Oh, yeah, for some people. We're looking for seven to 10 minutes. Sure, yeah. So we've had like, we had one on graffiti. We had one on the renovation of the NASA Space Command down in Houston. Mm. I gave one on barbecue. I mean, we have one on Burning Man coming up. I mean, nice. they're really cool. Yeah. And everybody, they love them. And people are like, I'm going to go. I, I think it's going to be fun. So we do that. That brings in everybody who wants to participate, not just the white paper designers that sit in pod three. So that's part of the reason we did it. So this is office-wide? It's office-wide. Okay. It's not even just the design more group. It's the entire office. Yeah. So the idea is if someone in the interiors department says like, hey, I'd like to work on my presentation skills. Yeah. We're like, great. Come on. Come on. Bring it. Talk about wiener dogs. Let's, Let's do, do it. it. Yeah. Yeah. So that's one way we're doing it. We also have, as part of that same design more group, I put together this program called Subject Matter Experts, SMEs. So we have subject matter expert presentations, which we actually haven't done one yet, but we're going to, and we're going to do a lot so of. This is something you've made up and you're still trying to execute. Yeah, I actually, so the idea on this one, I see these as rewards, right? So I talk to people in tears. I talk to these people and I go, I want you to nominate someone that I'll go say, hey, you've been nominated to be the champion for one of our subject matter expert presentations. And what that means is they get to choose the subject matter expert to come into the office and talk to the design more group about their creative process. And the idea is that we're not getting other architects or other landscape architects or lighting designers. We don't want that because this is about the creative process. So I was like, get a quilter, like someone who designs quilts, get someone who makes custom boots. You know, get a chef in mm -hmm. here. They all have a sure. process. They a have cake a cake person or what? Yeah, whatever, right? Yeah. Whatever it is. And then they get to come in. But the idea is that it's like a fireside chat. So let's say that you, Andrew Hawkins, you know, you're a Lego master. And I want you to be my subject matter expert. Well, the idea is you just get to walk into the room, sit down in a chair, and that's it. Everything else that you need to do to do your little 20-minute, 30-minute thing, your champion does for you. So if photos need to be taken. Oh, nice. Okay. And anything that needs to be organized, that falls the responsibility of the champion, right? So if they And need, that's the person that's in your office. That's right. That's the person that's in my office. So if I volunteered, like I said, like I would like to get a chef in. I'd like say, how do you how do you design new recipes? How do you try them out? Mm -hmm. Who eats this stuff before you say this is going on the menu? Yeah. Right. What's that process look like? 
So if I said, I'm going to ask this chef over here to do it, I get to contact him, but it's not Bob Borson contacting him. It's Bob Borson with Boca Pal. Mm-hmm. So I have the gravity of the entire office to say, this is what we're asking from you. I think it'd be an honor. I think few people would say no to this. And if I go, can I come follow you around some Sunday afternoon, take some photos? You know, this is what we're happening. It's cool for me. Yeah. It'd be cool for me as the champion. I would think so. Yeah. yeah. So that's the idea behind those. And then we also have in-house design competition where we actually pick a design competition, a real one somewhere in the world. And then part of our summer activities is we design it. So it's, it's in addition to your job. So it's more work, mm-hmm. but it's also what we, when we bring in our summer interns, it's what they get to do. They become the heavy lifters on our design competition. So like the interns aren't coming in and filing magazines. They're helping do the design or the production or whatever on the competition. Yeah, they're they're designing some super huge whatever and helping us with the graphics. So they get to do some really, really fun stuff. Yeah, that's interesting. That's kind of a cool way to do it. Yeah, so that's how we have to do it. So I go, that's inclusion. That's how we're doing it in our office. And so two of the three examples I listed are things that I brought to the table. They've already done the the competition one. They do it every year. Mm-hmm. Um so I go, all right, this is how this is how we're going to try to break the firm down, but also build it up at the same time, right? Yeah. So I think that's one effective way for you to help create the culture of design is by creating the opportunities for people to pursue their own interests and bring that in the front door to the office to share with other people. Yeah, I think so. I know of some other firms, they have internal design competitions or they'll have internal pinups. Mm-hmm. Of like, well, this group's doing something and they'll present to the whole office do a presentation on their project like it was for a client or something, but yeah, and get feedback. And you know, it's sort of like a studio crit thing and they'll do it for different projects. And some of the offices I know, because they have multiple around the country, you know, the principals, two principals from the Dallas office will go to the Chicago office and that's what they're doing. So they can sit there and you know, have sort of studio crit kind of things right. that happen yeah. at a larger scale. The other thing I think that's interesting about the design competition part is that, I mean, it allows everybody to kind of input, even if they're not, Mm-hmm. what you're calling a white paper designer versus a somewhere down the line, but that, that gives everybody a chance to be involved in that early upfront. Here's my own creation stuff. Yeah, they get a say. Yeah. And the trick to that, quite honestly, is this may not be the great example, but it's just what came to mind. Let's say you're not really good at sketching and I give you like the most beautiful sketchbook, bound, <laughs> yeah. gold edges. And I say, here's your sketchbook. Well, you're already a little in, like, I can't really sketch that good. This book is going to be intimidating. Mm-hmm. But if I give you like a janky, like a terrible spiral binder kind of thing, and I go, just sketch in this thing. It doesn't feel as precious and you're more likely to kind of put something on it. Mm-hmm. Right. And I go with these design competitions, you're kind of insulated. So no one's saying, you know, hey, Andrew, go design this new Uber Lyfts project. And then all 10 of us are going to get back and we're going to compare we're, yeah. what we all did. And you're going to go, I can't hang with these people, yeah. right? So you're going to go, uh, it's not for me. We're like, we're not doing it that way. Yeah. We're collaborating. This is like the stone soup. You remember the stone soup story? It's like. No, I don't know that I've ever heard the stone soup story. Stein super. I did it in German class. The short version is these two guys come into the small village and everyone's like, oh my God, we're starving. And they said, we got this. We can feed everybody. And they said, we have this recipe for stone soup. It's amazing. And they said, oh, yeah. And so they get a big pot, fill it with water, and they put some stones in it. People are like, I'm not sure that's going to taste very good. And they're like, you know what? It's better if you have carrot in there. And one of the villagers goes, well, I have carrot. I have carrot. And they're like, well, go get your carrot. 
I got you. And then someone so else build it all together. They, that's right. Someone else goes, I have soup. potatoes, yeah. and someone else goes, well, I got some salt, and the whole village contributes to make this amazing stone, stone soup. soup. Right. Dun dun dun. Yes. More from Life of an Architect in just a moment. So Andrew and I are sitting here today with Sue Watt, who is the Director of Color Marketing at Sherwin-Williams. Sue is a color expert for the Americas Group at Sherwin-Williams, and she's responsible for the company's overall philosophy of color leadership and overseeing world color trend forecasting, which I think that's the coolest title I've heard (laughs) in a long time. Well, thanks. That's got to be the coolest job ever. Not only is it a cool title, it's a great, great, great job. Yeah, I have the best job in the world. I certainly think I have the best job at Sherwin, and I will tell anybody that listens that information. As you should. Yeah. I mean, you get to work with colors all day, and I wonder at times, since you know Andrew and I are in the biz, that there are certain people that are like really love color, like they're color people. Yep. And then there's the people that are like, nah, neutrals are fine, you know, whatever. And I would imagine to have your job, you have to be a person who is passionate about color. Passionate. Absolutely. 100%. I didn't always know that. You go to design school, you're not quite sure what you want to do. This job kind of came out of nowhere, this idea of color marketing. And I jumped headfirst into it and it's 22 years later and it's, it's my whole life. It's amazing. So my background is interior design, which I think is really helpful in this role because whatever I put out there into the universe, I look at through the lens of design first. And I think that's important say for our color of the year, it's our annual go-to color for the upcoming year. And then we put a lot of emphasis on that color. It has to be a beautiful color and it has to look good in a home. It can't just be some pie in the sky selection. There's a lot of research and responsibility, quite honestly, that goes into that decision so that homeowners or professionals feel comfortable with the color. So it's the best way to say it is I look at everything I do through the lens of design. And I think that's an important distinction for Sherwin-Williams because whether it's new product development, it's application processes, this company is so dedicated to that. I feel like I'm a strong contributing member. Yeah, I can imagine. Well, you kind of said something, I go, we have a convergence of topics coming together here that I think creates a moment for me to ask a question that I personally have some interest in. Sure. And that it has to do with when you have new products, And we're talking about the colors and how they evolve. So I know that Sherwin-Williams has the new Emerald Designer Edition interior paint series that have come out. Yes, it has. And I wanted to personally use this opportunity to support my own interests (laughs) and say, let's talk about that. Because you guys came up with new colors just for that line. They're exclusive to that line, correct? We did. This is the culmination of 20 years, I swear, of my work. This product, Emerald Designer Edition, launched in 2020, so in April. And we had the opportunity to not only create this amazing product, it truly is. It's outstanding. Emerald is great. Emerald Designer Edition is just even better. It's hard to describe how it's better, but it just is. It's best in class. It's great. The colors are amazing. For years, I've heard from designers and being a designer myself, we had some gaps in our existing 1500 colors in our color snap system, which is a great system. We needed some help with our whites. We needed some transitional colors in our neutrals, and we needed a couple cleaner, brighter categories of pastels and chromatic colors. So with this product launch, as soon as I heard we had this really premium product, 
I immediately asked to tie colors to it. So that's where the 200 new colors came from. And then from there, it was an exciting challenge to kind of organize exactly what everybody needed. We needed enhanced neutrals. We needed enhanced blues and greens, definitely whites. And so this product and these colors deliver on that. Is there anything that you want to touch on? In April, we launched an architect and designer support center. It was really a reaction to everybody staying quarantined and safe in place for COVID, but there was a lot of resources question. In this new virtual environment, how do architects and designers get support that they need? Because the work is still continuing. So we put together a dedicated website where we gathered all those resources together into this microsite that supports the A&D community. So I highly encourage everybody to visit swdesignersupport.com. So yeah. I love it. Love it. Yeah, wonderful. Thanks, Sue. I really appreciate you taking time out to chat with Andrew and I today about Sherwin-Williams and their new Emerald Designer Edition Interior Latex Paint. Good job. And the colors of the future. And the colors of the future. Awesome. Good luck. And I love the show, so keep doing the good work. Fabulous. The links will be in the blog post, so drive safe. Don't feel like you got to write it down, and we'll point you to emeralddesigner.com in the resource page that Sue mentioned. Awesome. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, Sue. Take care. Thank you. Bye, guys. Have a great day. Let's move on to another way that I think you can help create this culture of design in an office. And it really comes to, and and I almost sometimes I think, I should have started with this one, but I want to ease into it a little bit. You got to have the right sort of people in your office, right? Like I think the person that says, I'm not a designer. I just draw stuff. Part of me goes, that's the wrong person. Sometimes you can't make that person not be who they are. Like they feel like they need to defend themselves for not being a designer. And I go, I don't want that. Yeah, I could see that. But at the same time, I mean, I wonder though, I mean, because we were talking about it a little bit before, but is that just because that's what they've been told or the way that they've been informed before? Like, I wonder if you can change that person would be my question is if like, if true, I can do it or if not. If that's true, I feel like I could change that person. You know, if I could say, here's the value you bring, like you making decision between this kind of base and that kind of base, you may be thinking you're doing it from an execution standpoint or, hey, we don't want to use MDF as our painted wood base. We'll use poplar because it holds together better and blah, 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 blah. And it costs less. And I go, those are design decisions. They're rooted in some practical aspects that are not aesthetic, but they're still design. You're making a decision between one product and another. It's design. Yeah. When you make the decision to say, hey, let's make this base three and a half inches tall instead of five inches because that way it'll slide under my toe kicks when I bring it around on my millwork package. Yeah. Right. I mean, these are very practical kind of things, but aesthetically they make a difference. Mm-hmm. And so, yes, there's a little semantics that are at work here. But for the person that almost like is defensive, like if they associate, I'm not a designer because I'm not that kind of person. That's what I'm fighting. Okay. I see what you're saying. Like it's a knock. Like for them, it's a bad thing. Yeah. Okay. I got you. I go, that's what I don't want. I want everyone to realize that. So whatever your skill set is, my goal would be for you to understand the value in the creative process. Creative doesn't necessarily mean the aesthetics. Mm-hmm. I mean, how you detail something. Sure. It's a big part yeah. of it. And this is something that's translated from my small firm because I had to draw it all. I designed it. I detailed it. I made sure it got built right. You do it all. Yeah. And so I don't look at the people that do the technical drawings 
as siloed a different breed out. of yeah, yeah exactly yeah no they're still a designer of just a different part of the project yeah 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 it's I to agree. the point where, like i go oh it's making me like i know that there are people there and it like it hurts me to go you're selling yourself short you know, like the difference between like a good project and a great project is that person oh yeah for sure yeah i mean 100 percent that person yeah i need you to be on board like they're really really important yeah so if i need to lift these people up by saying look you're not just this, you're this plus all this other stuff, which I wholeheartedly believe to be true. That's a big deal. So if we talk about having the right sort of person in the office, you know, that sort of mindset, some of that's just as simple as the kind of people that you hire, mm-hmm. right? You want to make sure that like, maybe you have an interview process that's in place that helps you vet out the type of people you might be looking for. And I have very strong opinions on this. They're not mean opinions, <laughs> but like, I'm not a fan of being passive when it comes to hiring people mm-hmm. i go don't get them off the top of the barrel get them all they're on the tree if i want somebody good you got to go get them you can't just like hope they come to you oh yeah i see what you're saying like my original podcast landon mm-hmm. that guy was amazing he was a summer intern we lucked into him he was a great guy i'm not even sure how he found us might have been through the blog but i thought this guy's got it i mean he's amazing so i kept in touch with him when he went back to school checking on him mm-hmm. how's the projects we have another young woman that worked in my last office as a summer intern for two summers. Same thing. I kept talking to her when she finished her last year. And I am aggressively saying, I need you to come to where I'm at now. And I'm sure she was all prepared to go to where I was before. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, it's not just me. So there's a difference between big and small. It's not just Bob and small and Bob and large, right? That's not what we're talking about here. Let's look at what your interests are. But I talked with her all year long, and this is part of it. And we also started talking about we need to have a more robust internship, right? Like if anybody comes to our office as an intern, and then they go back to their school, they have really, really positive things. Our internship program is amazing. Hmm. I mean, you're not doing garbage. They're like, I designed this amazing building with these other people. I think part of it was we turned over that program to some really amazing young women in our interiors department. And they get it. They're like, we need to do things with these people, not just in the office, but socially. Like we need to put together events for them, like team building exercise for the interns to go do. So it's not like they just show up, work, and then go. Right. We go, oh, you're going to lunch with these people today. Yeah. You're going to go do this after work. They're not viewed as temporary slash disposable slash cheap labor. Yeah. But the idea is that they leave screaming the benefits of working at Boca Pal Mm -hmm. and it, it works. Right. Because then all of a sudden people are like, well, I've heard a lot of really good things because da 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 was in your office and they loved it and they want to come back and work for you. And that's the sort of thing that's got some legs on it. Mm -hmm. But we're just kind of building it up. We've always had interns, but I think this real kind of renewed enthusiasm to how we run the program changed about two years ago. That's part of it. So I think how you hire. And also, I'll tell you that, you know, I just got back from career fairs at a couple of different schools and It was a very interesting experience. What do you guys go to those for? Are you looking for graduating students or summer students or both or anything? Yes. Yes. Just whatever. So, and we have different offices. So like we went to UT Mm -hmm. and we have an Austin office. We have a Dallas office. Sure. Some people might want to stay in Austin, but some people might be from Dallas and they want to move back to Dallas. So we had four people go to the Austin one. And I went because I'm on the UT School of Architecture Advisory Council, so I wanted to be a part of it. Plus, it's my alma mater. I went to school there. Sure. 
uh, Andrew Bennett, who's one of the four partners in the office, he was also a graduate from UT. He's older, like a lot older. Like way older from what older, I remember. Way yeah. more older than me. <laughs> so he wanted to come because we're trying to say, hey, let's leverage. Andrew's like the most positive, happy guy. It's like everything's awesome. I rarely hear him complain about stuff in front of, like in an open room. Mm-hmm. I just don't ever see it. Yeah. So he's got a very infectious personality when he dumped in front of younger people, for sure. And then we had some people from the Austin office go. And we talked to everybody who wanted to talk to us, mm-hmm. you know, and we met some amazing, amazing people. But it's funny. They'd come with their port. And this happened. I went to Arkansas, too. And I got to tell you, kudos to Arkansas. They were amazing. What they're doing at that school, I'm really impressed. Hmm. I came out going, there's like six or seven can't miss people in this class. We can't take them all. I mean, we're about to have leg wrestling competitions. Sure. We can hire like four or five. Four people. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. And I've got, we went to seven different schools. Oh, wow. Right. And we're like, how do we pick? So we all, it's cage math, you know, with the people that went. Yeah. Which I like my chances in that environment. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, it was amazing. And so what we ended up doing is we're saying, let's build up the intern program. Let's get them positive so that we can vet these kids out and get them excited about what the possibilities are. And they come in knowledgeable about who we are. Not, we're not having to convince them anymore. Mm-hmm. That's a big part of it. Yeah, that is. But what was funny is I looked at a lot of portfolios mm-hmm. and nobody really understands. Like, I don't look at portfolios the way I guess like anybody does. I guess I'm unique in all the world on how this happens. I don't really care about your projects. What I want to look at is how you put your portfolio together. That's the one project I know you have ownership of. So when I get portfolios where it's nothing but like team projects in there, it's a little maddening. And I go, that's bad problem solving on your part, potential candidate. You shouldn't just put team projects in here. Why don't schools tell people this stuff? I'll tell you, being a person in this school now myself, though, the problem is, at least at state schools like mine, they have to do team projects because the instructor to student ratio is so blown out of proportion that if they're not doing group work, you don't get to talk to students individually. You can't keep up. That's a problem. So I don't do that. Like I don't really like for the simple reason of what you're talking about. If I look at a portfolio and it's got, I was a team of four on this project and a team of four on that project and the whole portfolio, there's nothing that you did except for the photography or the artwork in the back. I can't assess what your skill levels are. I don't really know. Right. What did you do on this? Oh, it, you did the renders or you did the floor plans, but most of the time they don't outline that stuff to say what's what. And so I don't do it, but that's the reason I bet is that they don't do individual projects. It's not even that they don't choose that, right? Let's say that I go, you know what? I didn't understand that. I totally will look at this different. No, I won't. You know, I won't. No, I know. I'm not saying you would go either, but pictures. I'm just saying- Go do sketches. Go do, go build. Do something. Yeah. That's just you. Mm-hmm. Since that does happen, and I'm not just talking about people who have nothing but team projects, but I don't know how much your professor influenced you in the outcome of your process. Mm-hmm. So when I interview people, I look at how they carry themselves. I look at how they answer the question. I think about the vocabulary. I think about, did you ask me questions? Did you ask me good questions? When I look at your portfolio, I look at the work, but I look at the work for things like, Is there line weight? Did you have graphic sensibilities? How did you curate the projects you decided to put in your portfolio? How did you lay that information out on this piece of paper? Did you like jam it full of stuff? Did you have a balance of white space? This is what I evaluate. I agree. I 
rarely, I mean, like I rarely look at the portfolio for very long when yeah. I'm doing an interview. Yeah. But I will look at it as the project, like you said. To me, that's the project. You've got images of whatever and whatever, but is that poorly arranged and poorly put together? And is it hard to read? And is it da da da? Yeah. And it makes it a lot easier to evaluate these portfolios, quite honestly. Oh, yeah. I think so. Because then what that leads to it is that gets you smart, motivated, visually intuitive individuals. Skills, I'll teach those. Mm -hmm. I'll get you there for that. Well, and, and to be honest, the other thing I think about is that really, I don't think that many students have skills that directly translate into the practice. Like day one. Yeah. Like they have to, they're going to have to learn something anyway, right? I mean, like you're going to have to teach them how to do stuff anyway. Yeah. So, I mean, they need to, they need to know how to do some things, but whatever office you go in, they're going to have their own way to doing it and all that kind of stuff. So it's really, if they've got the foundations of some skills, then the rest of it, yeah, I'm going to teach you anything. You know, it's kind of interesting. I had lunch with the Dean of UT School of Architecture. Mm -hmm. And we were talking about the different kinds of software they use and do they teach specific software platforms and all this kind of stuff. And she was talking to us about the pressure that she's getting as the head of the school about firms saying, we want your students to come out skilled in this activity software, and yeah. software day one. So she goes, things like, Revit, they're now, guys got to learn it. That's what employers want. And I go, that's kind of a bummer. Because mm -hmm. I look at it and I go, all the people I know that fit my criteria for hiring, and I know I have the ability to be a little bit in a white tower on this. Like we get really good candidates for employment. They're all smart enough. They don't know Revit. They'll know it in a month. That's not the rate limiting step in a month. If I'm just hiring a warm body that can draft, if that's the only skill set that I need, then yes, maybe I would want them to know Revit day one. The people I'm talking about that are on this list, the people that would actually support the idea of design as a culture, I don't need them to know Revit when they come out of school because they'll learn how to do Revit fast enough when the time is right. I agree. You know? In some ways, it could be a detriment if they know it too much because they're going to have bad habits that they've created for themselves or fall into your system that well. Well, I also think that it limits creativity to a certain extent. Oh, yeah, for sure. You know, there's a guy I work with, Jason Hansen, funny guy. Like, I really like him. I'm sure he doesn't like me that much, but that's not true. He likes me fine. I think it's disproportionate because his skills are on display. He's hard not to look at and go, that's a serious dude. Mm. While goofing off, he's good at what he does. He described the use of Revit perfectly in a way that I've been searching for a way to describe it for years. And he goes, as a design tool, Revit's no good because it requires you to know where you're going before you get there. I was like, that's pretty solid. Mm -hmm. I think that's part of the reason why, as a firm, we tend to like SketchUp. You know, it's a really simple program. I mean, you can do a lot with it with really not much. You can go down a path and go, no, that didn't get me there. Chuck it and not feel like. You've wasted a yeah, you haven't wasted huge it. amount of effort. That's right. Yeah. So he'll actually build stuff in Revit and bring it into SketchUp. Like if he goes, I want this really complicated curving wall that that might be a little difficult for me to build in SketchUp, mm -hmm. I'll build this one component in Revit and import it in as a piece. Which is funny because to me that sounds backwards, but yeah. Yeah. But he doesn't do that often, but he says, he, but he can. Yeah. I want to move on to the idea of fostering social capital, which just those three words make my head hurt a little bit. Not that I don't buy into them, but I go, there should be an easier way to describe what those three words represent. But this really has to do with 
whether the people in your organization lower their heads and keep to themselves, you know, which that by itself is an activity that does not encourage inclusion and collaboration. So social capital is, at least in the way that this talks about it, social capital is a resource that is realized through shared goals and mutual trust, which is another way of addressing group accountability. Like we're all in this together. When social connections between team members are strong, this can positively impact your workplace and create happier people, better communication, better distribution of information, healthier dynamic of group action, all the good things that we all want. Welcome to the touchy-feely portion of the podcast. This is very touchy-feely. Everybody, come here. I'll give you a hug. Big hugs. But thing is, all the things I just prattled off, I go, they all sound great. Like, who wouldn't want those things? I want them. I yeah. want them for the people that work for me. Yeah. Well, I'm not discounting the fact that if you want them, you're not lesser. It is a little touchy-feely. No, but. no. I, I know. I just, it sounds touchy-feely. It's not, though, because I understand what it is, and I agree with the sentence of not with your headphones on and your face in the monitor and you're not looking up. Yeah. That's the reason why I didn't ever want headphones in my office, because it just isolates everybody. I mean, in a small office, even it's a little bit, I guess, harder to become isolated. But like in your office where there's 80 people, I mean, I'm sure if I wanted to, I could go in there and put my headphones on every day and not talk to anybody and still do my job. Yes, you could. And like not really. And we have a couple of people that are, that are kind of like that. Yeah. Again, it, I think it's better. It's not even just about fostering a design culture. It's just about fostering culture yeah. in your office, right? Where everybody knows everybody and we, there's some social context. And so then therefore, I think it lends itself to these other things about, well, we're all in it together. We're all going to get together to get this finished because it's better for all of us and not, sorry about your deadline, bro. Later. Peace you out. Know? Yeah. Well, it's a good example, but I want to touch on it. The whole idea of like putting your headphones, lowering your head. I don't have to talk to anybody if I really don't want to kind of thing. That has its moments. As we've gone to more open offices, work environments, it's very hard for some people. I understand. Yeah. You know, and I'll tell you, I put headphones on when I go, I really need to focus. And so the headphones, the music that plays through them, I'm not grooving, singing songs. I don't hear it mm -hmm. after like five minutes. Mm -hmm. And what it does blocks out all the distractions that I'm not really a part of anyway. But the way that we overcome the idea that if you're in your rabbit hole, with your headphones and head down, we have things to draw you out. Our care is to get you out. Are like the design more, are like the professional development more, sure. the sustainability more, where you can't put your headphones on and participate. Mm -hmm. We have created this environment to where if that's what you need, there's a space for that. But we're also creating a space where you can't do that. Mm -hmm. To your benefit, we're not making these people do it. Again, it's voluntary. Even though some level of participation is encouraged, and quite honestly, there's probably a couple of people who are like, you're on enough of these. <laughs> Go do something outside of the office to become a more rounded person. Yeah. So, so let's talk a little bit about that social capital. So part of that has to do with like letting, let your coworkers create their own value, which the only way you can do that is if you create as an institution the opportunities for those folks to feel good about themselves and their contributions. That can stem from little things like the attaboys, which I don't like saying it. Like, I didn't even know that's how you said it until a couple of years ago. But there's a guy in my office who I like. He hates the attaboys. He's like, I don't want that. That like makes it worse. And I go, okay, well, you're weird in yeah. that way. But okay, so I've got that in my head now. 
don't give him an attaboy because he actually has the exact opposite reaction to it. <laughs> yeah. But we Funny. do have monthly staff meetings where everybody in the office comes to it. Everybody gets together in one space. And we will recognize the efforts and achievements and accomplishments by different people in the office. Sometimes we're like, hey, shout out to the 3109 group because they hit like a crazy deadline. The client sent this email in saying how, how amazing. And they'll be recognized for doing something that is worth recognizing. Mm -hmm. And then we also have each office has like some trinket, like the Dallas office has a Buddha doll. And that gets passed from employee to employee. So I could say that I have it. I get it because the previous person who had it wants me to be recognized for doing something above and beyond. Not mm. just an attaboy, but just a, this guy's exemplary. This is what he accomplished. It's pretty amazing. No one would know about it unless I took this moment to call him out. So here it is. That happens. Interesting. In Fort Worth office, they have a cat. They have one of those waving cats that they have. Oh, uh -huh. Or no, that's actually Austin. Fort Worth has a Mr. Peanut. <laughs> there are these little statue things that they have. Sure. But it's the opportunity for people to recognize it can go to anybody from anybody, but you have to get it in order to give it. Does that make sense? Yeah. You quote unquote earn it from someone because they see value in something you've done. And then it's your job to find someone to replace you. Yeah. And is that, is that monthly? Yeah. Every month. Okay. I have the Mr. Peanut for a month, but in that month's time, I got to find somebody else to give Mr. Peanut to. Yeah. I can't just hang on to Mr. Peanut for like three months and be like, yeah. None of you guys have done anything worth it. You're like, I'm keeping it. I'm still the best. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I would just be like, this month I did so many things. I'm keeping Mr. Pete. I give it to myself. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But see, the other thing, there is a process. Like, so let's say that I'm going to give it to you. Mm -hmm. I have to go up there and present it to you. I can't say, hey, this month it goes to Andrew. <laughs> and you come up and take it and everyone claps and you go sit down. No, I have to say. This is what you've done. This is why. And da, I'm da, da, giving da. it to Andrew because for these reasons. Mm -hmm. And so I guess you could say, ah, oh, they're attaboys a little bit. Kind of. But yeah. they tend to get into the personality behind the behavior that led to the accomplishment that took place. Gotcha. Like the, the woman who's in charge of the accounting department. She got it recently. First off, nicest woman ever. And a crazy good artist. I mean, like you go, what? How You're the accountant? Yeah. Like you're an accountant. Wait, yeah. what? It's amazing. Yeah. So she got it. Yeah. Part of it was like. She sits back there. She's not demonstrative. She's not boisterous or loud. She doesn't like do cartwheels through the office. Yeah. She does her job. She has one of those jobs that if you never hear about it, that's how good she is. Mm -hmm. Right. It means you're doing it way right. Right. So somebody to find her out to say, like to seek out and go, this person deserves it for these reasons. They got to look. Yeah. They're not just like passing it off. But again, and I think that's a, it essentially kind of what we're, what we're talking about is building a community within the office. Right. Yeah. A family type deal, right? And that does it because I, I have to go find somebody else in the office that is doing something worthwhile that maybe hasn't gotten it. Or Yeah. So, you know, one other thing that I wrote down in my notes here about how you can do this was the create better communication tactics, which is what we're doing with those more groups that I went into length earlier on, you know, the different type of ways that we can bring people together, different groups that span across the silos of responsibility they may have. Mm -hmm. And everyone's brought together by mutual interest and in whatever, it whatever is. that topic is like our community outreach. They're like, Hey man, we're going to go build ramps. So they work together to put all that stuff together and they mm -hmm. go do it. It's bonding. Yeah. And they own it. They mm -hmm. own that. And the firm facilitates it. It's pretty cool. Which is good. It's pretty cool. So I have this thing on here. It talks about 
a few ways to improve employee engagement. Part of it is encourage employee feedback. And so part of that is as simple as me saying, hey, I'm management or leadership. Tell me what you think we could be doing better. The suggestion box. A suggestion box. In fact, we actually do, we call them workshops. So like the design pod, design mm-hmm. group. We recently had two workshops and we had eight people come to this one, eight people come to that one. We did a SWAT, you know, strength, weakness, opportunities, threats. We talked to everybody through that. And this is just, it really could be a bitch session, but it's not. It wasn't. Mm-hmm. They were talking about, hey, this is good. This is what we can improve on. And, you know, we're barely course correcting them to stay on point sometimes. Mm-hmm. We just kind of let them go. And then halfway through, we brought up the same kind of SWAT chart that was created two years ago. And we compared them. We're like, what did the things did we think we were good at then, then versus, versus now? now. Yeah. And like communication was a, not a good thing. And now it's like, it's a good thing. Or if we have one that says, oh, this was a problem two years ago and still a problem. Let's highlight this one. Let's figure it out. And so with that information, once you create the opportunity for people to, to say, hey, here's opportunities in a, in a safe place, right? Because we don't want people to get in trouble for this. The next thing on this list becomes really important because once you've created that opportunity for employee feedback, you actually have to take action on that feedback, which I think we could be better at, but I, I would say that regardless, no matter what it is, we can be better at it. And it's the, we say, hey, we're going to do X. And then somebody goes, yeah, we always talk about it, but we actually never do anything about it. That's the worst. Mm-hmm. Like if you create the opportunity for people to say, hey, we should try to make this better. And you go, that's a great idea, Bill. And then you don't actually do anything with it. You're better off not asking Bill for his opinion in the first place. Well, yeah. Or I also think that there's an opportunity there to be like, that's a great idea, Bill. Why don't you come up with... You're the champion. Yeah. Why don't you figure idea. out how... I mean, give come up with ideas of how to change that. Right? Yeah. I mean, well, that's not what, just be that's, like... Well, that's what those more groups are yeah. as an example. And then, and then part of it is make a plan to engage your employees, which that's really kind of everything we've been talking about. Yeah. It's like, how do I create an opportunity for you to be in the position for you to do your best work, the thing that makes you most passionate. And then once you're in that position, how do I give you the opportunity to provide me feedback on how I can make it even better or how you can make it better? And then how can I take that and empower people to act upon the things that you think need improvement? Sure. That's part of what all this is. Really what we're talking about is ownership top to bottom. Yeah. You know, I, I feel like we've gotten a little bit off this idea of creating a design culture because we're really talking about sort of an office culture and a, that doesn't necessarily matter about design. This could be a peanut farmer's office with some of the stuff that we've been talking about. Yeah. How do we make the most passionate peanut farmers? Yeah. Right. But I think some of it, we kind of lost a little bit when we were talking about how do we make sure that everybody believes that all this stuff is related to design right? and how it makes well, things design better. Right? I'll disagree with that a little bit. I agree with you in the idea that you can replace the design descriptor with almost any other descriptor. Mm -hmm. But if you go into it and say, my goal is to create a design culture, this is still how I would do it. I agree. But I think it, mm, I just wonder if we're going to get feedback about, well, you guys talked about the design culture, but then you started talking about just office culture and it wasn't really design oriented. Cause I mean, we could be doing this and it could be an engineer's office. You know what I'm saying? Like, well, you know where a lot of stuff came from? It came from like white papers that Google put together. Apple put together. Yeah. But the whole idea has to do with this creative process. And in order to create an environment where the design or this creative output is the process and everybody needs to buy in, the only way you can get anybody to buy into anything is to let them have ownership and responsibility for it. 
I mean, so even though we might say, hey, we said this was about creating a design culture, it can be really about creating just a positive culture. But in our case, I want the design culture, so that's what it's about. Mm -hmm. If I want it to be about better peanut farming, I can make it be about better peanut farming because that's what I want to be about. It's still the same process. Yeah. I think that's kind of the point of this is that that the goals that you want, if you're trying to take the culture from A and move it to B, how do you make that happen? Part of it is you have to get the right people in. You have to create the opportunities that allow that creative process to come out and people have a voice in that creative process, Mm -hmm. which is what we're doing with back on to the design more. Like we have other things that go along with it, but the design more, I'd say the design more is one of the most heavily engaged groups. And that was not true a year ago. Hmm. In fact, we've heard people complaining that they're getting too big. Like there's too many people coming to them now. So they're not proving as valuable because they're people that don't get to talk. We have an hour and a half and we meet every two weeks. Yeah. The group gets too big for everybody to be involved. That's right. Actually. And and so it becomes an issue. Mm -hmm. Right. And, So we're actually kind of victims of our own success at this point. And I go, once some of these other things come online, it's going to get worse. We're going to have different problems that we're solving. But you know what we're not going to be solving? I'm not worried about engagement anymore because people are showing up. Yeah. People that didn't typically come to these things are now coming to them. Mm -hmm. And part of that was me, Bob, I said, you're in charge of the design more. How can we make it to where people come? And and you're going to laugh at me for this. You're going to go, of course you did. You're just dying already. You're I'm already waiting. giggling. You're already giggling about it. Over here, Rick. Come on. So what I did is I said, here's the problem with it. They're too, like, whatever. I go, we need some structure to them. We need to have an agenda. Every one of these meetings is supposed to last about an hour and a half. Mm-hmm. And I go, I want 30 minutes of scheduled, this is what we're doing, followed by an hour of whatever the hell we want. We can be as fluid as we want. We can let conversation go wherever we want them to go. But... Every single one of these for like the first 30 minutes, we have like two or three things that we're going to do that people can count on. And we're going to have an agenda that says today we're doing a seven minutes in heaven and it's going to be, Luis is going to be presenting today. All right. You're going to know what that is. And then it's going to be followed by Mr. Lane's neighborhood. And he's going to be talking about tips and tricks on blah, 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 blah. There's a structure to it. Mm-hmm. But then it evolves into, hey, did you go to the design lecture at the, you know, the architecture forum last night? What do you think of that? Yeah. You know, blah, 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 blah. That's part of it. I go, but you got to have both, right? You got to have some structure and you got to have room to go wherever you want it to go. It can't be all the latter and nobody wants it to be all the former. Yeah, I know. Right? Why would I make fun of you for that? It sounds right. I know it's right. You make, well, you make fun of me for actually like being organized sometimes. No, I don't. Okay. That'll get cut out. I'm organized. (laughs) You, You just don't, you just think I'm not organized. I'm very organized. Compared to me, you're not organized in the same way I am. It's just a different way. And yeah. the only way that you do you only yours is in your head. Which this only is the only reference you point you have, though. What's the only thing we do together? I know. So that this is, and this is not. This, I don't, this I don't is, organize this. This is not mine to organize. But it could be. Well, yeah, that's but that's the thing. Okay. Anyway, we're gonna move on. <laughs> okay, so while we've only scratched the surface of our conversation today on creating a culture design, I'm ready to move on to this episode's hypothetical question. But first, let me ask you a pre-hypothetical question. You okay with that? Sure. Do you like turkey legs, jugglers, random people dancing to fife music off by themselves in the background? Do you like these things? As long as there's chain mail. (laughs) Nobody likes those things. (laughs) Oh. 
Except for turkey legs. Renaissance fair. And even then, only when there's beer available. Large steins. Half yards. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so we're going to travel back in time for today's question, even though it's not a time travel question. Here we go. What kind of peasant do you think you'd be if you were born in medieval times? You know, because not everybody gets to be a knight or royalty. So, Of the, noble birth. Yeah. That's right. For our purposes, you are not a knight. You have no noble birth. You're a serf. You're in the field. Cool. You're in the village, walking in the muck. In the muck. Mm-hmm. You don't have satin or silk I don't, pants. Yeah, I don't have anything. No, you have three outfits. Exactly. I have three pair of pants and one shirt. Yeah. And if you do have any livestock, chances are they live with you in your house. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, there you go. It's about choosing my profession in medieval serfdom. Yeah. And, you know, part of that is, as I was doing, because I did do a little research on this one. I mean, I didn't research to get my answer. Mm-hmm. I was researching because i like, well, if I say something, I don't want it to be like way out of bounds. You know, like how fast people die or how often they die or why they die and that kind of stuff. So there's things like. Uh, I thought you were thinking it'd be like, I didn't want it to be something that wasn't even around in medieval times. There's a, yeah, there's a little I was going to be an internet technician. That's Yeah. <laughs> yes. Ooh, I just thought of one that you could do. Go ahead. No, I'm, I'm not going to tell you what it is. Oh, well, I kind of know mine, yours. but anyway. Yeah. I'm Were you going to finish your research about how many ways I'm going to die? No. Well, I did find out that according to some generic site on the internet, so you know it's right. It's the truth. 500, you are 500 times more likely to die a violent death if you lived in medieval times than you are now. 500 times. Yeah, but what does violent mean? I don't think. I mean, does that mean by the hands of another or just the fact that I got trampled by a horse? Probably. Something like that, A giant stone falls on the rampart and crushes you. Exactly, yeah. And your family, because that's where you're sleeping. Yeah. Right outside the walls. Yeah, I got you. You're split down the middle. You're drawn and quartered. quartered. That's the fun one. All those kind of things. Okay, so I thought about it a little bit. Not a lot, but a little bit. We know that's how you roll. Oh, for the hypotheticals, for sure. Sure. Oh, also, before, just so you don't step in it, because I think it's fair. <sighs> I actually looked up when was medieval times. Like, the, when was from this day to this date? This is considered the medieval times. Okay. And what is that? 476 AD to 1453 AD. So about a thousand years. Interesting. I wouldn't have gone back that far. Fifth century to the 15th century. That's, oh. what, that's what we're talking about. I was given it like 800 to 1200. It's kind of right in the middle. Yeah. But like the plague, like the bubonic plague, mm-hmm. that was at the very tail end of the medieval period. Mm-hmm. That happened in the late 1400s. Yeah. Okay. So. Okay. So I think I would want to be a blacksmith. Really? Yeah. Okay. That's what I chose too. I'm just going to tell you that right now. Really? I'm a blacksmith. Oh, yeah. I think that would be cool. I mean, I like to do that kind of stuff now anyway. That would be the one thing where you could sort of still be a crafts person in a way. I mean, granted, there was a lot of crafts. I mean, I could be a basket weaver or whatever. I thought you'd be a beer maker. No. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there might be. A, You're like, be a, what? I didn't think of that. Maybe. but Maybe. At that point in time, there wasn't, it wasn't that complex. It's pretty much from what I know, it would be like honey mead and that's about it. You could change all that. Yeah. It depends. Do I have the knowledge that I have now or not? I mean, you don't have blacksmith knowledge now. I know. It's fine. <laughs> But blacksmith, I think that would be cool. I would like to do that. Okay, so your logic is because it would be cool. Well, no, because I like, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I like knives and stuff, and <laughs> I like playing with metal. Okay, all right. 
bendy things like the heat and the fire and the hammering and all that cool stuff. Okay. But otherwise, yeah, I don't really know. I'm not going to dog you for your answer because it's what I chose. Mm-hmm. But you're going to dog me for the reason of, I think well, it's cool. Well, yours was cool. I actually, you know, said, you know why I think blacksmith would be good? Because I think part of it's just trying to avoid being killed probably on the field of battle. There was lots of skirmishes back then. And I go, if you're just like the farmer, they're like, man, you got rounding you up, tenant, and we're going to go fight the neighbor. Oh. Right? Bring your pointy stick, <laughs> yeah. right? Well, yeah. no, the blacksmith's going to make you a sword. Maybe. <laughs> and here, go. Can't, can't make them for everybody, right? Yeah. So, but I go, they're like, blacksmith's too important to put on the front lines. <laughs> That's why. <laughs> I, love that. I like the rationale there. Right? Like, I go, I don't want to die. It's because I'm going to stay at the back, hammering out the swords and That's fixing right. the armor. That's right. You I can't do it without me. You're going to make fun of you go, yo, Bob wants to be important. <laughs> I'm the one saving everybody's life uh, no. by making them chain mail. Yeah, you're better, saving your own life. better weapons. Yeah, really. I don't want to be out in the field. <laughs> well, I'm with you. I just didn't want to be a farmer. Like, I was like, oh. I thought, well, I could be like a bread maker. But I'm like, no, because somebody gets mad at you and they kill you. <laughs> I think that could happen with anything. Yeah. Right? Maybe more so with a blacksmith. I don't know. Yeah, they might try out to see how good the sword yeah, you made like, you is made this sword's terrible. You. Watch. It doesn't even cut your arm off in one slack. It takes four. to hack you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to be hacking on you for a while. Yeah. So here's another thing. So you might be thinking, I was all prepared for why you were going to laugh at me for my choice. Because I'm not the biggest guy, right? You know, like compared between the two of us, you're definitely bigger than I am. Okay. But. I'm still trying to figure out what this happens to do with anything. Therefore, I would have been more attractive in the Middle Ages because no, I was more rounded. I think, no, I think. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even say it like that. Uh, anyway. No, but I think the idea that, you know, when you kind of, what kind of imagery do you conjure to mind when you think of somebody pounding away in the forge? You think of like big, burly, oh, muscular okay. people. Oh, okay. I got you. Yeah. And, you know, I think few people would look at me and think that I'm a big, burly. I got you. you know, but you'd be wrong. I mean, I am 6'1", 215. I am not small. No, it's just next to me. <laughs> You're just bigger. <laughs> so people would maybe would want to go to your village. To get something from you than to my village. But see, I got a good attention to detail. I'm obviously really good at building and maintaining fires, right? That's already a current. Oh, I got you. I'm good at that, mm -hmm. right? And I think, you know, this 21st century big brain of mine, like, it's not just pounding away at stuff, you know? Okay. Craftsman. Yeah. That's me. All right. I'm a six foot one, 215 pound craftsman. That's fine. Right? I think that's not unreasonable. Here's another reason why I thought. So I was like, why do people die in the medieval times? Other than like germs. That was a big one. And like skirmishes. That was another mm -hmm. big one. Just traveling was dangerous. Not just from like bandits in the woods, which they were there. That was dangerous. Mm -hmm. But like you going from point A to point B, you're like sleeping in the woods. You get attacked by animals or you find an inn and it's riddled with fleas and that's they're carrying disease. I was like, you're getting, you're going to die from fleas. That's a new one, but well, I got you. That's from, where the plague came from. Yeah, from diseases. Yeah. Okay. Blacksmith, they don't go anywhere. They're like this is, this is their town. People come to them. This is true. Right. You're not hauling up your anvil and all your, like your forge. Except for when they come and say, you know, Bob. You are the best craftsman ever. You're coming to the front lines with us in our war against fleas, the Huns. No, they're not. They're like, you need to like start working more hours. No, but they'll bring stuff. you with you because. Sure. But you're still in the back. 
That's yeah, right. You're not in the front. But That's right. I'm three. But even when you're moving there, at least you're moving with a, an army accompaniment. So you're yeah. You're not going it alone in the woods, getting mauled by a bear in the middle of the night. No, and I'm not walking. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You're walking with your pointy stick, and me, I've got like a wagon. I'm not. I'm a. Well, I'm just saying. I'm right beside you. Apparently. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm across the field of battle. Maybe making them for the other guys. I know that would you know that would be that would be bad. <laughs> But yeah, that's it, really. That's surprising that we that we both came up with the same answer. Yeah, because I was thinking, God, what am I going to be? Because you can't be, you can't go. Oh, I'm going to be uh, a wool merchant. No, because that's not peasant. That's merchant, right? So that puts yeah. you. And I was thinking, yeah, there's like farmer, there's like a baker, um, there's a candlestick maker. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I guess you could be like a seamstress. I don't think you would. A tailor of some kind. But I'm just thinking at that level. There's not a lot to choose from. Yeah. There's really not. I don't think any of us want to be a farmer. Like, do I think I could be a farmer? Mm-mm. I don't know that I could. I mean, I might could be one today, maybe. But back then where I'm like, what, I have a stick <laughs> and what sharp piece of metal and that's it? Yeah, no. Your whole livelihood's based on that 200 square foot piece of dirt with rocks in it and there's a pig <laughs> rolling yeah, through it. Yeah, I know exactly. It. That's a hard pass. That'd be hard life. Yeah, had to be. Yeah. That's why they died so early. Okay, so on the dying early, I did look it up. <laughs> I know. So I was about 32 and a half years old was the average age. That's because most the most likely way was people not even making out of childhood. Like birth was really touch and go. But you don't count that, do you? No, they do. I looked at it and I go, because they're like. How do you count? A, if you live to the age 25. Death at birth. Well, like, I don't mean like during childbirth. Oh, you mean like in the first, like. 10 yeah, years when or something you're, or whatever. Oh, like, no, when you're like a little baby. Dingoes. <laughs> <laughs> Although, but I guess, I mean, I'm assuming if you got sick, that probably was a pretty high percentage of you going to die. Meet your maker. child, yeah. Yeah. So what brings that average down was that, one, just infancy was hard. Mm-hmm. And then skirmishes, you know. Mm-hmm. But the idea was over 25, you were seasoned by that point. You were like. You were old, essentially. You're ready for the elders. Yeah. But you could live to be 70 years old. People didn't like, not like 33.5 or whatever it was, 32.5. Mm-hmm. That's not like, people didn't drop dead at that age. That's just the average. There yeah, but lots still of people seems like a pretty low average. 60 and 70. But I'm assuming probably at, at that point, by like if you made it to 40, you were considered too old to do stuff. Yeah. They weren't coming, hey, we got to go fight the neighbors, Gramps. They're coming to get your grandkids. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, no, you're 40. Oh, no, forget it, Pops. You're done. I mean, unless you were just like Kroll the Conqueror or something, but then, you know. <laughs> Didn't he have the throwing thing? <laughs> yeah. Otherwise, yeah, I'm sure at that point people were like, oh, man, you're just old. You can't. You're, 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 you're worthless. Slow us down. Yeah. We want your sons and your grandsons. Yeah, probably. Yeah. You know, part of the reason they don't really know about the whole, because they didn't keep those kind of records. Like Joe and Mary's baby died at 10 months. Like, yeah. There's no records of that stuff. Okay. I think we reached a point where I think we're going to call that a wrap. Thank you for being with us today for episode 46, A Culture of Design. A special thank you to today's sponsor, Sherwin-Williams. We'd also like to thank our media sponsors, BD&C, for their gracious support of this episode. If you liked today's episode, please take the next 15 seconds and head over to your podcast listening app of choice and hit that subscribe button so that you can get those oh-so-fresh episodes every two weeks. 
While you're there, please leave us a five star. The grass is always greener where you water it. Be sure to visit the original life of an architect.com for show notes, links, info, and photos from this awesome episode. Be sure to stick around until the very end. We'll pull the curtains back and include some audio from the show that makes us look foolish as our way of proving that we're not robots. Thanks so much for tuning in. Cheers. Take it easy, everybody. Hi, everyone. I'm Bob Borson. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm Andrew. Hawkins. Yes. All right. Except when it comes to CAD standards. Even then, in my <laughs> new office, they don't care. I Nobody cares. Yeah. <laughs> and hit the subscribe button so you can get oh so fresh, they're still moist fresh. That's so gross. It's just so fresh, they're still moist. <laughs> That's terrible. I'm not saying that. You say whatever you want. I don't like that word. While you're there, please go to whatever podcast listening app you use and leave us a five-star, the grass is always greener where you water it, rating. Because, you know, design culture, pay attention (laughs) to something. Okay, I guess. I don't know. I was like... Haven't you ever heard that before? Yeah, I have. I was just trying to figure out how related to design culture. It's genius. Now, Now you know, makes perfect sense. Okay, all right.